I don't know where it went. There's no way that somebody else took it. It's a ghost. Oh my god, yes, it's too late to walk away. Tara no Masakado back again, haunting me in the early results. Yes, he clearly needs a USB C to USB connector. <laughs> Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Like oh, what? Like, I don't know. He likes Apple products. <laughs> Maybe they have that in the afterlife. I don't know. Welcome to Hidden Among Us. I'm your host, Chris. And this is Honda. Welcome to episode 59. <laughs> well, something is clearly not going right for the both of us right now. So, um, well, either way, Honda and I met and meet up yesterday for like the first time in how, how long? For months? <laughs> I don't know. Last time we met was like a day before your birthday, I think. Oh, wow. Right? I don't remember meeting after that. June, July, August, September. Like four, three months, four months. Yeah, I mean, in between that, because we had the heightened alert, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and like, yeah. well, I got to finally watch a movie since um the pandemic hit so this is like <laughs> first movie in a year did we watch any movies last year i feel like we didn't i feel like i watched something you did i think you would have but like the both of us because we usually watch movies together i can't remember what was the last movie we watched together and I don't think we watched a film in theaters last year either. I think the last it's the last time we watched Joker last like before yesterday. It might have been Joker. Like this is not us counting Netflix films. This is like us Physical physically theater. in a theater. Yeah. Was it Joker? I think it might be Joker. That... I don't know. There's something kind of sad about the fact that our last movie watch before the pandemic was an <laughs> incel film, The Joker. Well, yeah, but yesterday the both of us watched um, Shang-Chi and um, Honda. What are your thoughts on the movie? It's really good. It's really good. <laughs> the thing is, um, when the trailers first dropped, the both of us were talking about it. We were like <laughs> very dubious about the film. We didn't think that it was going to be good. Yeah, I had like zero expectations for it. I had zero expectations. Also, um, I didn't like I didn't like that they used rap music. Uh, I remember I criticized that. I was like, why are they using rap music? Yeah. Um And then the trailer just seemed so underwhelming. I know we were kind of excited because Tony Leung was in the film. (laughs) And he's like, I mean, he and Michelle Yeoh are like important people. 
in Asian cinema, in Chinese cinema. So we were like, okay, that's the selling point of this film. Mm. Yeah, but it was a pleasant surprise that this movie was really good. Like the reviews that came in were calling it good. And I tried not to overhype it because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you remember our conversation about the Joker? We were talking about how, like, the film was just okay. Like, in hindsight, it's just an okay film. Like, I feel like that film was really hyped up. A lot of people are saying that it was just this amazing movie, like an amazing character study of this, of the Joker. Then we watched the movie and, like, it was okay. It wasn't, like, the best film Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was worried it was going to be like that for Shang-Chi because I didn't want it to be like me yeah. going in with all these expectations because it, it was really reviewed very well. And I guess I was mostly concerned because it was like a Chinese martial arts thing. Mm. And like when Western portrayal... <laughs> of like Chinese martial arts is always very stereotypical. Like also, yeah, also not to clock um like Western film reviewers, but I feel like when they talk about Asian or like Chinese films, like martial arts film, the only movie they use as a point of reference is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> and like I mean, okay. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is an excellent film. It really, you know, took took the the choreography and like the story of like martial arts and really like stretched it and made it like beautiful. But every time I see a Western um, movie reviewer talk about an Asian film, they're always talking about crouching tiger hidden dragon and how like the fight scenes and everything is comparable to that film and i'm like okay is that the only like asian fighting film you've seen you know like if you like if people like those kind of things you should, uh you should watch uh once upon a time in china which is by jet li Mm. The Wong Fei Hong series Oh it's so good Cause yeah I mean I did martial arts When I was a kid And I love That whole film series So much I didn't really watch A lot of Like Chinese cinema I mean either uh, I haven't yeah. watched Wong Fei Hong Like the like... Of Once Upon a Time in China Cause I like martial arts Yeah but the thing is like Even then growing up I was quite familiar with Like Jackie Chan's work and like some of Jet Li's work and stuff like that. So my point of reference is not always Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> Jackie Chan is very popularized. Like, uh, like if I were to think of like good martial artists, I wouldn't think of Jackie Chan. I would think of Jet Li, mm. Donnie Yen. They are like, I mean, I wish there would be more coming out. Like they're so old already. So I'm like quite sad that there isn't any more like younger martial artists out there yeah and I feel like if they're leading into the martial arts sort of choreography like it's now turned into like this 
almost like mystical sort of thing. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe clock me for this, but I really, really enjoy seeing um like these over-exaggerated martial arts moves. Like you can tell that the actors are wired up and they're being pulled back. I don't know, that style is really nice. Like I think it just <laughs> it's just really nice to look at and it really, really like stretches, you know, the choreography. Yeah, but anyway, uh we completely detracted from our main point, but Shang-Chi was really good. So um anyone who I don't know, is skeptical about watching it, I think you should watch it. It's- oh my god, and if you like big fight scenes, you will love Shang-Chi. Oh, okay, listen. Shang-Chi's <laughs> fight scenes, um, how do I describe it? I feel like it's not big in the sense of like big fighting moves. It's like made up of small pieces I don't know how to describe it, but it's just, it's not, it's not very showy, which is something that you often see in Marvel films. Like those fight scenes are very, very showy. I feel like the fight scenes in Shang-Chi are almost like low-key, but also like practical. I don't know how to describe it. Yeah, it's very different because the other superheroes, they have godly powers, you know. Mm. And for Steve Rogers, his style isn't this kind of fighting. Yes. It's very punchy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that kind of like... Over- punchy and shield. That's it. <laughs> but for this one, it's really like hand-to-hand combat, which is really yeah. nice to see. It's really nice because like... It's be- it's wonderfully choreographed. Like, I, I enjoyed it. Also, it doesn't help that every single cast member was good-looking. Um, yeah, it was just... It's, it's a good film. So... I, yeah, well, I'm <laughs> no excited way. to see the upcoming Marvel films, and I hope it's just as good. Next one is Celestial. Celestial. Hey, Celestial. Eternals. Eternals. What the fuck? Cele- Eternals. What? Is that a movie that I've never heard of? <laughs> no, but the word Celestial is involved in both. Yeah, okay. Eternal. I'm kind of for Eternals because of the cast. The cast is. I am I am excited for the train to Busan guy. Yeah, Madong So <laughs> I'm excited for him, but also I'm kind of curious to see what Angelina Jolie is doing in a superhero film because <laughs> I feel like I would never imagine her in a superhero film. And she's just gonna stand there and look pretty. <laughs> well, she she's proved that she can do fight choreography from like Maleficent. She did. She was in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I mean, like, in recent years. Okay. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith is, like, a whole, I mean, she was so young back then. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm referring to, like, recent years and, like, more fantastical kind of movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith is uh, still set in some reality, I guess. Yeah, so I'm curious to see what she's going to do in like a Marvel film, like a superhero film. Oh, well, okay, Honda, what's your story about? I'm well, excited. Because uh, it's today's 12th September. And I mean, even if 
I probably can't do like 9-11 stories justice because it's so massive. Like mm-hmm. I don't even know where to start and stop. So it's kind of in a similar vein. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about one of like America's deadliest case of domestic terrorism mm-hmm. known as the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. I feel like this is familiar to me. I think if you hear the person's name, you will probably be like, ah, okay, I've heard of this name. Okay. Yeah, so this case was the deadliest act of terrorism in the U.S. prior to the event of 9-11. And the man behind this incident is Timothy James McVeigh. Mm, okay, the name is familiar. <laughs> yeah, the name Timothy McVeigh is very uh, famous. Mm. Uh, so he was born on April 23, 1968 in Lockport, New York. And... McVeigh was an Irish-American and he grew up in Pendleton, New York, and both his parents were working. His father worked at a local Harrison radiator plant and his mother at a travel agency. Mm-hmm. But then when he was 10 years old, his parents had divorced and the parents gave him and his two sisters the choice to choose who to live with. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. feel like as a child, I wouldn't be able to pick... I feel like it's more traumatic to ask your children to pick which parent they want to go live with. Mm. Like, you know, if the court mandates it, I feel like you can throw the blame on the judge. Mm -hmm. But when you ask your own child, like you give the power to your own kids, it's like, how are they going to pick between their parents? Unless it's really clear, you know, if one was... Yeah, unless it's really clear. But in the situation where like you know the divorce was because of parental issues i mean the 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 parents had their own issues and the kids like generally had like an okay home life i feel like i would not be able to pick that's traumatic Mm -hmm. so but timothy was angry at his mother at this for the situation and yeah so he blamed her for everything that's happening and decided to stay with his father well, okay. Yeah, you know, but the father's father works at a radiator plant and he works long hours, so he was barely at home. Mm. Yeah. So McVeigh said he was a target of bullying at school, and most of his schoolmates remember him as being shy and withdrawn. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> it's always Uh-oh. like this. Uh-oh. And while in high school, he had become interested in computers and became an amateur hacker and even managed to hack into a defense department computer. Oh, I feel like there's always two extremes with... Hackers. <laughs> with with um, these, like, killers. It's either they were extremely reclusive, had no friends, or they were super boisterous to the point where they were, like, I guess seen as... Uh, an annoyance to society. <laughs> yeah, and in his senior year, he was more, he was named most promising computer programmer of Starpoint Central High School. <laughs> but and, had what? No, I was just like they named him that after he hacked into some like defense department thing. Like, I mean, actually, some places do offer rewards if you manage to hack into it. Like, why? You're rewarding, like, bad behavior. No, that, that means, like, they know where to patch up. 
in case of actual serious like hacking. Oh, okay. Um, wow. I forgot which Singapore government uh, website is doing this right now, but they're offering a reward if for anyone who managed to hack, hack, uh, get hack, who managed to hack in. Um, I feel like this is a double-edged sword that could possibly <laughs> bite them in the ass. I'm pretty sure it comes with terms and conditions for the reward, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like not sell the info. <laughs> I just don't think it's not the best idea, but okay. Yeah, so other than computers and hacking, he also became interested in guns, which oh. was introduced to him by his grandfather. <sighs> Yeah. So one day he he sent off a book advertised in the back of a gun magazine called The Turner Diaries. So this novel was written by former American Nazi Party official (laughs) William Pierce under the pen name Andrew McDonald. So it tells the story of a gun enthusiast who reacts to the government's tightening of restrictions on private firearms by bombing a federal building. Are you kidding me? It's like a, sh- a foreshadowing. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah, so McVeigh often referred to the book and interest- and introduced the book to other people he met. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Later on, at the age of 20, in the year 90- 1988, he enlisted in the United States Army and attended basic training and advanced indiv- individual training at the U.S. Army Infantry School at Fort Benning. And while in the military, McVeigh uh, used much of his spare time to read about firearms, sniper tactics, and explosives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he was reprimanded by the military for purchasing a white power t-shirt at a Ku Klux Klan protest where they were objecting to black servicemen who wore black power t-shirts. Okay, no one can see me, but my jaw just dropped. <laughs> Yeah, this is during the time where the Black Power movement was very strong. Oh my god. Oh, it reminds me of the Black Klansman movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's kind of interesting? Um, I mean, I'm in this class that we basically look at film and like history. It's called History of Film. And one of the films that we discussed, and this film is considered to be um, the... This film is essentially the film that paved way for, like, modern cinematography and the way films are, like, made this way. And it's called The Birth of a Nation. Uh This film single-handedly revived the Ku Klux Mm -hmm. Klan because before that, before the film came out, um, the Klan was nearly gone and they were dormant so there were essentially almost no Ku Klux Klan people out and in this sorry the name is just (laughs) shitty and I have no respect for the organization so I'm not even going to correct myself but essentially after this film came out all these KKK assholes were like okay um, we can come out because this film is essentially talking about how the white race is threatened. It's an incredibly racist film. And it's kind of shitty because like, it's kind of shitty because this film is like the film that you need to know about 
and because of what it did for modern cinema, but at the same time, it has so much racist roots. And I just think to myself, like, what if this film didn't come out? Like, would the KKK come back? I mean, it's the same kind of argument of would you kill Hitler as a baby? <laughs> right? Like, eventually something else would come out to possibly cause like the resurgence of some mm-hmm. like something someone like Hitler or like a clan like the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> so I don't know. I just constantly think like what if this film didn't come out? What if the KKK didn't come back? I mean I feel like it will merge one way or another. <laughs> I know, but it's like you hear things like this guy buying the these like shirts, merch, like white supremacist merch. And so it's oh it's so frustrating. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So unsurprisingly, McVeigh was a top scoring gunner with the 25 millimeter cannon of the Bradley fighting vehicles used by the first infantry division. Mm-hmm. And was promoted to sergeant. I don't know half of what I said, but yeah. 25 millimeter cannon sounds like a camera. So I was like, okay. This goes back to our discussion about how we know nothing about guns. <laughs> so cannon of the Bradley fighting vehicle. So is it attached to the vehicle? I don't know. I don't know. People are there. And then I thought it would be bigger, but isn't 25 millimeter very small? What's the cannon for? <laughs> we know nothing about guns. We are just here to like. <laughs> so after being promoted, McVeigh earned a reputation of assigning undesirable work to black servicemen and using racial slurs. Of course. <laughs> honestly, honestly, screw birth of a nation. Screw the Klux <laughs> Klan. Screw every Nazi to exist. Screw every white supremacist. And screw this guy. Honestly. Yeah. In an interview later on, McVeigh said that he decapitated an Iraqi soldier with can of fire on his first day in the war. Yeah, so he he said this proudly, right? Yeah, he was posted to the Operation Desert Storm War. Yeah, but you know, the incident, the whole incident shook my face, especially when he dis- later discovered that many of the Iraqi soldiers did not want to fight and were equipped with vastly inferior weapons. Gee, I wonder why. He said he was later shocked to be ordered to execute surrendering prisoners and to see carnage on the road while leaving Kuwait City after US troops routed the Iraqi army. Mm, mm, okay. So McVeigh received several service awards, including the Bronze Star Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Southwest Asia Service Medal, Army Service Ribbon, and the Kuwaiti Liberation Medal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. McVeigh aspired to join the United States Army Special Forces after returning from the Gulf War. Uh, he entered the selection program, but he washed out on the second day of the 21-day assessment. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, after the Operation Desert Storm, he 
was not as physically capable as he used to be. Mm. Yeah. And so back in Kansas, he grew more aloof and alienated from his fellow soldiers. And in addition, McVeigh developed a reputation as a racist. <laughs> he even he signed up to, for... <laughs> he had to develop a reputation to be known as a racist. Um, okay. He even signed up for a trial membership in the KKK. But he chose to not renew because he found the clan too focused on issues of race and not enough on Second Amendment rights. What is the Second Amendment? Is it a gun owning? I'm pretty sure it's the gun right to bear arms. I don't think anyone joins the KKK because of gun laws. Like, isn't the point of joining the KKK because you think that... um, the the white race is threatened by black people and non-white people. Mm. Yeah, second amendment is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay. I mean, I won't be surprised if KKK people also would love to keep their guns, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's that. But I feel like the whole point of joining them is not for guns. Mm. There are pro-gun organizations out there. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it really funny how he this established racist <laughs> joins a racist cult and then he's like, but I'm not here for the racism. I just want gun, more gun laws that let me have guns. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So less than a year after he returned to the US as a hero, uh, McVeigh dropped out of the army and told his commanding officer, I just feel I need to leave. I'm rolling my eyes at the fact that he's a hero. I, I'm not even going to apologize for the fact that I freaking hate racists. So. <laughs> so he tried to find a job and start his civilian life, but he had no college degree and this period was during the period of the recession. So he found it hard to obtain a good job and eventually settled for a security guard position. I guess God is real because he struggled to find a job. Yeah. He became more and more disenchanted with developments in his life and his criticism of the government also became more heated. So he liked to talk about politics with his sister and co-workers and also sent several angry letters to local papers. Okay. Yeah, so I'll read some of the things he had written. So... The American dream of the middle class has all but disappeared, substituted with people struggling to just buy next week's groceries. Heaven forbid the car breaks down. (laughs) That touched me on such a deep level. And then uh, I'm going to say more. At a point when the world has seen communism falter as an imperfect system to manage people, democracy seems heading down the same road. No one is seeing the big picture. Maybe we have to combine ideologies to achieve the perfect utopian government. Remember, government-sponsored healthcare was a communist idea. 
should only the rich be allowed to live longer? Does this say that because the person is poor, he is less a human being and doesn't deserve to live as long because he doesn't wear a tie to work? I hate to admit, but like he is making some points. Yeah, he is. He is. <laughs> Which is, I'm so annoyed. I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> but he is wrong, so... <laughs> We hate him even though he's making points. <laughs> yeah, so other than him being critical of a very capitalistic government, <laughs> uh, he harped on threats to the right to bear arms and was especially enraged at the government siege of Randy Weaver's cabin in Ruby Ridge, Montana. So this Ruby Ridge incident was a standoff incident in 1992 where Randy Weaver, his family and friend were in an army stand arm standoff with the US Marshals and FBI agents. Mm. Okay. Well, I didn't look into why it started, but um it especially escalated when uh his child, 12 years old, was mm-hmm. um shot in the back by uh I think it was a U.S. Marshal. Oh, and the, shit. Yeah, the son died in collateral oh. damage. And then <laughs> I think he went on to shoot a U.S. Marshal. Oh, yikes. And then, yeah, okay. shit went out. Uh, soon, after, soon afterwards, uh, McVeigh left home saying he was looking for a free state in which to live. So while he was looking for a new place to live, um, it was during the time when the government authorities had attempted to raid the Branch Davidian compound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So McVeigh dropped his plans and headed, headed for Waco, where he saw bumper stickers supporting the Davidians for a few days. Okay. Where did the proceeds go to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 Did they actually went to the Davidians? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, when he left town, uh, McVeigh began two years of roaming America that would bring him to 40 different states. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so during this time, he spent chunks of his time uh, living with two friends from the army with similar political views. Uh, Michael Fortier, who lived in Arizona, and Terry Nichols, who owned a farm in Michigan, with, bro- with his brother, and he would later become the central figures in the Oklahoma City bombing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, but McVeigh also spent time on the gun show circuit, moving from show to show, selling copies of the Turner Diaries and other paraphernalia. Okay. Yeah, so in the gun show culture, McVeigh found a home. Yeah, but he still kind of remains uh, skeptical of some of the most extreme ideas being <laughs> being in like the gun shows and he liked talking to people there about the United Nations, the federal government and possible threats to American liberty I see <laughs> so he's saying he's not as crazy as some of the people he met there <laughs> sure <laughs> Like bombing a building wasn't as crazy as some of the conspiracy theories then. McVeigh was in Michigan at Terry Nichols' farmhouse when the ATF and FBI raided the Branch Davidian compound, where about 80 members of the cult died in the, in, in the inferno. 
So, McVeigh, do you not know about the Waco incident? I think I do. You look so confused. I was like, huh? You don't? No, know? no, no. It's because um, it just occurred to me that I kind of know who the brunch dividends are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I've, I've either heard a podcast episode about them it's or I've very... read about them. They're a cult. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very famous case. A lot of shows reference Waco as well, especially when the FBI tries to like enter, like investigate a cult. Okay, I know, I know what they are. I know what they are. It was this insane standoff between the yeah, yeah, yeah. cult as well as the authorities. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I, I, remember, I remember. This is quite common in the US because <laughs> people, you know, they don't like authorities and they think you know, they own what they own. Mm. Yeah, so if government tries to take over, they, yeah, they respond quite... <laughs> and they have weapons, so they respond... Mm, violently. Violently. Yeah, so maybe saw the images on the television and he stood and wept <laughs> in the Nicholas living room. So... Afterwards, his anti-government rhetoric became more heated as the ADF officers, uh, you know, were firing guns and flares. Yeah, so surprise, surprise, McVeigh also became more interested in conspiracy theories and determined to find out for himself. On several occasions, he visited sites that were rumored to house government secrets. So once he even broke into Area 51, the land in New Mexico. Yeah. He met an alien. We're kind of conspiracy. <laughs> fell the, in love with the alien. He fell in love with the <laughs> alien. I think as a racist, he wouldn't even fall for an alien because different race. So I hate this man. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I hate this man. Okay, carry on. Yeah, so he believed that the site hides evidence of aliens. Yeah, so... I mean, so, so do we, right? <laughs> Wasn't there like a whole Area 51 thing that happened last two years ago? People were Naruto running through Area 51, <laughs> don't you remember? <laughs> so... Other than his conspiracy theories, he, though, he was also overcome by a paranoia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was a well-known figure at gun shows. And on one occasion, he conversed with a man he knew to be an undercover, undercover government agent. So, yeah, and during this time, the Congress passed the assault weapons ban in the fall of 1994. So McVeigh became convinced that more Waco-like raids were in store and that he was likely a target. Mm. Yeah, so in response, McVeigh began stockpiling weapons and supplies at the small home in Kingman, Arizona, where he had settled. Yeah, so this stage mentality unnerved his neighbor, Fortier. But even if they were disturbed by this siege mentality... It was nothing compared to the shock when he informed them in 
in the late fall of 1994 that he was moving to the action phase of his conflict with the federal government. I like how he thought like he's just single-handedly going to take down the federal government. I, I feel like he's imagining this whole conflict up. Like he feels like he's the main protagonist. Oh God. <laughs> like, like seriously, I don't I don't I don't think the government really he's just an individual. Yeah. Honestly, the government does not give a shit about this one guy. He's imagining the whole conflict. Precisely. The government. Main it's not one of those things where the government has identified him as like a threat and they're, they are intentionally doing things to slowly break down his psyche. <laughs> Which they have done to some people. The CIA have done to some people, actually. Hmm. Yeah, like they guess like the shit out of them until they think that they're like <laughs> crazy. Yeah, but I, this one is, I think he, it's just not happening. Yeah, so working at a lakeside campground near McVeigh's old army post, uh, he and Glitz constructed an ANFO explosive device mounted in the back of a rented rider truck. And the bomb consisted of about 5,000 pounds, which is 2,300 kg of of ammonium nitrate and nitromethane. Hmm. So on April 19, 1995, McVeigh drove the truck to the front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building uh, just as the office opened for the day. Yeah, so before arriving, he stopped to light a two-minute fuse and at 9.02, a large explosion destroyed the north half of the building. And it killed 168 people, oh. including 19 children in the daycare center on the second floor and injured 684 others. Mm-hmm. So McVeigh said that he had not known that there was a daycare center on the second floor and that he might have chosen a different car- target if he had known about it. Nicholas said that he and McVeigh did not know about the daycare center building and that they did not care. Yeah, so by tracing the vehicle identification number uh, found in the wreckage, the FBI identified the vehicle as a rider rental box truck rented from Junction City, Kansas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Workers at the agency assisted an FBI artist uh, in creating a sketch of the renter who had used the alias Robert Kling. So the sketch was shown in the area and uh, Leah, Leah McGowan, manager of the local Dreamland Motel, identified the sketch as Timothy McVeigh. Mm. I saw the sketch and I didn't think, I don't know, I wouldn't. You wouldn't identify him with it? Mm, yeah. I think like, sketches are really, like, TV shows really like sketch until it looks like the actual person but in real life it's it, it's not like that like the sketch is kind of big mm, unless there's like a really striking feature like a scar right mm, it yeah was, it was like that that could be anyone you know it's the eyebrows i guess i guess yeah no but um that's the thing like yeah, it's probably the eyebrow. Yeah, but really, this is the thing. It, it's in real life. Okay, this is, it looks more like him, but 
in real life, the sketches really don't look that close, like the kind we see on TV. Yeah, so shortly after the bombing, while driving on the Interstate 35 in Noble County, near Perry, Oklahoma, McVeigh was stopped by the state trooper Charles J. Hanger. Uh, Hanger had passed McVeigh's yellow 1977 Mercury marquee and noticed that it had no license plate. And McVeigh admitted to the state trooper who noticed the bulge under his jacket that he had a gun. So the trooper arrested him for driving without plates and possessing an illegal firearm. Yeah, so, yeah. McVeigh's concealed weapon permit was not legal in Oklahoma. So at the time of this arrest, McVeigh was wearing a shirt um, with a picture of Abraham Lincoln and the motto Six Semper Tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. The supposed word sheltered by John White's roof after he shot Lincoln. Ooh. Yeah, on the back it had a it had a tree with a picture of three blood drop three blood droplets and the Thomas Jefferson quote. The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Three days later, uh, McVeigh was identified as the subject of the nationwide manhunt. It's like, not until you, you, you see the pictures, like, you can really see the massive damage of the bomb. Yeah. 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 So I was, like, quite shocked when I first saw the images, like, a few years ago. I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is, like, actually serious. Because, like, one side of the building is, like, totally gone. Yeah, and the thing is, it extends all the way to the top. So it's not even, like, a few floors that were... Top. Like a yeah. hole, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's literally like that building. It's crazy. And it's like a, a bomb inside a car. And like, uh, yeah. I didn't. I just didn't imagine that the effect would be that big. Yeah, I feel like we constantly underestimate the power of even a small bomb. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so on August 10, 1995, McVeigh was indicted on 11 federal counts, including conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, use of a weapon of mass destruction, destruction of the use of explosive, and eight counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of law enforcement officers. Hmm. Yeah, so psychiatrists concluded that he had major depressive narcissistic personality and Schizotypal personality disorders. Mm-hmm. On February 20, 1996, the court granted a change of venue and ordered the case to be transferred from Oklahoma City to the district court in Denver to be presided over by the district judge, Richard Paul Marsh. <clears throat> so McVeigh instructed his lawyers uh, to use a necessity defense, but they ended up not doing so. So the necessity defense is when the defense argue that they should not be held liable for their actions uh, as a crime because what they did was necessary to prevent some greater harm. Yeah, so if they went along with the necessity defense, uh, they would have to prove that McVeigh was in imminent danger from the government. But McVeigh argued that imminent did not necessarily mean immediate. And they would have argued that his bombing of the Murrah building was a justifiable response to what 
McVeigh believed were the crimes of the U.S. government at Waco, Texas, where the 51-day siege of the Branch Davidian complex resulted in the deaths of 76 Branch Davidians. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so on June 2nd, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty on all 11 counts of the federal indictment. Yeah, but you know, this doesn't include the 168 people and the children that were killed. Yeah, the murder charges were brought against McVeigh for only the, uh, the murder charges were only for the uh, eight federal agents who were on duty when the bomb destroyed the building. Hmm. Yeah, along with the eight counts of murder, um, he was charged with conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction and destroying a federal building. And the Oklahoma City District Attorney Bob Macy said he would file uh, state charges in the other 160 murders after McVeigh's co-defendant Terry Nichols was tried. So after the verdict, the, the all, all guilty verdict, McVeigh tried to calm his mother by saying, think of it this way. When I was in the army, you didn't see me for years. Think of me that way now, like I'm away in the army again on an assignment for the military. Um, <laughs> That's different. It's <laughs> way different. My dude, okay. Yeah, on June 13th, um, the jury recommended that McVeigh receive the death penalty. And the U.S. Department of Justice brought federal charges against McVeigh for causing the deaths of eight federal officers leading to a possible death penalty for McVeigh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they cannot bring charges against McVeigh for the remaining 160 deaths in the federal court because those deaths fell under the jurisdiction of the state of Oklahoma. It's just confusing because there's so many states and different laws in the mm. US. Yeah, so I can't really comment on that. I mean, in Singapore, it would be clear-cut. And very I mean, clear-cut. Yishun doesn't have different laws from, like, <laughs> I don't know, Thompson. Thompson. <laughs> I don't know why I thought Thompson. I could have thought of anything else. Have you ever been to Thompson? Yes, I have. There's now an MRT station that leads, like, I can go there very easily. Would you? you. Would you leave your house? I have no reason to be at Thompson, but if I do need to be at Thompson, I can be at Thompson. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Yeah, so because McVeigh was convicted and sentenced, um, to death, the state of Oklahoma did not file murder charges against McVeigh for the, the other 160 deaths. I guess because it's redundant. Yeah, but I feel like, I don't it's know. Like, it's like, it's like kind of how some people, their sentences is like it accumulates like 100 years and then years. on top of that, they're given like a life sentence, like this person is not going to come out. Yeah, I just I think it just feels shitty, I guess, for the victims because technically he wasn't charged for that. Mm, yeah. Though he will die for what he did, but it, he wasn't charged. Technically, he wasn't charged for that. Yeah. So it's it's okay. I get it. I see. I see it that way. <laughs> yeah. So before the sentence was formally pronounced by the judge, McVeigh addressed the court for the first time, and said. If the court please, I wish to use the words of Justice Brandy dissenting in Olmsted to speak for me. He wrote, 
Our government is the potent, the omnipresent teacher. For good or for ill, it teaches the whole people by its example. That's all I have. Is he saying he's used as an example? <laughs> um, I feel like it's always dangerous to hold governments to like the highest moral standard. <laughs> of course. It's, it's very dangerous to uplift governments to like almost a godlike level. Like no government is perfect. Law set in place is generally done for the benefit of the larger population. So people are always going to fall through the cracks. And not every government decision is going to be a benefit, even if they believe it's a benefit. Mm -hmm. And not every politician is, you know, a good morally upright person. No, they're not. (laughs) So I feel like what he's saying is so BS because he's like upholding the government to like this like high moral position. The government is not here to teach you values. That is something you learn from your parents or like larger society. Well, his parents were mostly at well that's true but <laughs> I, I mean what the hell man this guy is just weird yeah so his death sentence was delayed pending an appeal and one of his appeals for Sergio Rari taken to the Supreme Court of the United States um, but was denied on March 8, 1999 so the Sergio Rari is is a court process to seek judicial review of a decision of a lower court or government agency. I have no idea what that is even after you explained it. (laughs) I think it's just to review the sentence. Mm -hmm, Okay. Yeah, because this this isn't a Supreme Court case. Supreme Court is like the highest court. Okay. So this is a more local thing. Okay. I understand. Understand now. Yeah, so, uh, and McVeigh's request for a nationally televised execution was also denied. Jesus Christ. Okay. I think he wanted to be a martyr, right? Yeah, he comes across as. Defo wanted to be a martyr. He was, he's doing this for the people or whatever. Lol. For I'm KKK. taking one for the people. Yeah, like I'm, taking, I'm taking one for all the Nazis out there. Yeah, so McVeigh was held in the United States Penitentiary Administrative Maximum Facility and was housed in what was known as the Bombers Row. So in the same cell block, um, there were other infamous bombers that were also held there. So bombers such as Ted Kaczynski, the Yuna Bomber, and Ramzi Youssef, one of the main perpetrators of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. The 2001 and 11. Wow. I always forget World Trade Center had a bombing incident before 9 11. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it had. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so Yusuf also made um, frequent and unsuccessful attempts to convert McVeigh to Islam. McVeigh is a Roman Catholic, by the way. 
I thought he was racist. Okay. <laughs> I hate this. I just appropriated a meme for this guy. Anyway. Okay. So... There's no way in hell this guy is going to convert to Islam. <laughs> There's just no way. So the Federal Bureau of Prisons transferred Mengfei from the prison he was at to the federal death row at USP Terry Hot in Terry Hot, Indiana in 1999. Mm-hmm. And McVeigh dropped his remaining appeal saying that he would rather die than spend the rest of his life in prison. On January 16, 2001, the Bureau of Prisons set May 16 as McVeigh's execution date. And McVeigh said that his only regret was not completely destroying the federal building. <clears throat> yeah. However, six days prior to his scheduled execution, the FBI turned over thousands of documents of evidence it had previously withheld to McVeigh's attorneys. So as a result, um, U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft announced McVeigh's ex- execution would be stayed for one month. So mm-hmm. the execution date was reset for June 11th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So McVeigh invited conductor David Woodward to perform Requiem Mass music on the eve of his execution. They can do that? I mean, some places have like the last meal thing. So I guess this one is like last <laughs> music. Last wish, I guess. Make a wish. Yeah. So while acknowledging McVeigh's horrible deed, Woodward consented, intending to provide comfort. And McVeigh also requested a Catholic chaplain. And his last meal consisted of two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream. That's how you know it's a psychopath. Like, mint chocolate chip ice cream. Well, I want to see you eat mint chocolate chip ice cream now. I hate it because chocolate is too sweet, sweet and mint sweet. is too minty. Tastes like toothpaste. Yeah, it's a toothpaste combo. I'm not in for that life. I'm a boring person. So who likes pineapple on pizza? Hey, pineapple pizza is amazing. Okay. Yeah, so McVeigh also chose William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus as his final statement. So just before like, like the one Morgan Freeman reads in the movie Invictus. I have no idea. Hold on. No, I can't remember. Wait, wait. This is Invictus by? William Ernest Henley. William Ernest Henley. Okay, my internet is crapping out as usual. It is. It's the one Morgan Freeman reads out in Invictus. No, even Tom Hiddleston has read it before. Oh. Hmm. Yes. Okay. This is a poem that Nelson Mandela uh read a lot. I mean there's just something very satisfying in knowing that <laughs> this known racist wanted his last um like this poem read before he died, and this poem just so happened to be like the favorite poem of a black man. A very famous black man. 
I don't know. I kind of, I kind of love that. <laughs> He's rolling in his grave. He's rolling in his grave. I, I just hope he keeps rolling. I hope in hell he's just tortured constantly for being a racist and everything, and for murdering so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just before the execution, um, when he was asked if he had a final statement, uh, he declined. Um. Usually, a uh, death sentence in like that when the when they're doing the deaths carrying out the death sentence in the US, there's a viewing gallery. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so there's a viewing. You know, you, you know, there's a viewing gallery, right? Um, I thought they had that like in the past. I didn't know they still have it. I mean, this is in two thousand one. <laughs> yeah, as in, I thought the viewing gallery thing was like really like a very old concept. I don't think so. I think they might still have it. So, uh, Jay Sawyer, a relative of one of the victims, wrote, um, without saying a word, he got the final word. So, and then Larry Witcher, whose brother died in attack, described McVeigh as having a totally expressionless blank stare. He had a look of defiance and that if he could, he'll do it all, all, all over again. Yeah, so I guess the victims would get to see his I feel execution. like it's just terrifying knowing that there are people like him out there still. Mm. Yeah, so McVeigh was executed by lethal injection at 7.14am on June 11, 2001. I still don't think lethal injection is a good way to a good thing to use for executions, but yeah. No. Like I'll, if you're gonna do capital punishment, like I feel like it should be a bit more faster and effective. Yeah, I mean, no matter how heinous it is, it's just it's the act of putting someone down, like you're killing them almost like an animal. And understandably, like what they've done, like you can always just say that how are these people human, right? They've done such inhumane things, but. I mean, ah. Uh, because like, there was one um, person on death row when the injection didn't work and he didn't die. Yeah, it, it's just, ah, uh, man, it's just, ugh. And a lot of prisons um, unable to procure the necessary um, cocktail of drugs to create the lethal injection. Yeah. So they use know. other stuff and which makes the the whole process even more prolonged and they really suffer when they die. Uh, yeah, and you can't harvest the organs. So it's like literally a waste. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of capital punishment. Mm. I think I've said it like several times in this podcast. Like, it's, it's just, man, it's just the act of having to put a person. The, the the reason why I put use the phrase put a person down is because it's almost animalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, your your life is given into the hands of the state, of these authorities, and they are in charge of essentially killing you. Mm-hmm. Like, frankly, putting animals down, it's done in a more humane manner than half of the way capital punishments are carried out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, out of 
on capital punishment, Singapore's one would be the most effective. Cause yeah, because it's uh it's quick. They measure and they don't feel anything, yeah. They measure your height, your weight, then they will adjust the length of the rope and the weight attached to it. Yeah. You know, also on this tangent about like putting um things down, like you know, even for animals, right? When we are about to euthanize them, it's not like a sudden injection and then they're gone, you know. So before we euthanize an animal, we sedate them so they're unconscious, mm. they sleep, and then we administer the drugs. So, you know, that is done in what, I mean, we call a humane manner. But for human beings, I mean, even if they have done heinous things, I feel like people should at least still be, I wouldn't say respected in death, but you, you know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. If you gave me the choice, I would eradicate capital punishment, like put everyone for life sentences. Get rid of people who were put in jail for like drugs, especially for drugs that are now legalized. Mm-hmm. And get rid of for profit prisons. <laughs> yes. Oh God. Yeah. So um, back in November 21, 1997, uh President Bill Clinton signed S923, a special legislation introduced mm-hmm. by Senator Arlen Specter to bar McVeigh and other veterans convicted of capital crimes from being buried in any military cemetery. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I didn't know that that was a possibility. Mm. Yeah, so instead his body was cremated at Maddox Ryan Funeral Home in Terry Hot, and his ashes were given to his lawyer who um, said that the final destination of McVeigh's remains will remain privileged forever. He fed it to like the pigs or something. Ashes. <laughs> Or threw it into the ocean. I feel yeah. kind of sad they gave it to the lawyer. The lawyer was just like, What am I gonna do with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, McVeigh had written that he considered having them dropped at the side of the memorial where the building once stood, but decided that it would be too vengeful, too raw, too cold. Yeah, he even expressed willingness to donate organs, but prohib- was prohib- prohibited from doing so by prison regulations. Hmm. A lethal injection makes it impossible for him to donate yeah. anyways. Yeah, so that's the story of Timothy McVeigh. Wow. I feel like it's been a while since I've gotten so riled up and like angry <laughs> at like the subject of one of our stories. Yeah, but wow. Holy guacamole. A lot to think about. <laughs> it's a lot. It's really a lot. Mm. I mean, there's also the... Like, I'm just thinking about how... I mean, he was diagnosed with a form of psychosis, right? Because he had these sort of delusions, but... Yeah, I mean, we also wouldn't know how the war that he participated in affected him. Yeah, but at the same time, but he has made some rational decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it once again goes back to the whole thing about how you may have a mental illness, but your inherent values have nothing to do with your mental illness. Mm. 
Yeah. It's just that laws, like when you're trying to, I don't know, prosecute, it's like not black and white. It's not, it's not. Yeah, but the system isn't made for like flexibility. It's very, it's a very black and white system. Wow. Thanks for the story, Honda. Moral story, don't be racist. Oh my god. Um don't don't buy guns. Of course. And don't bomb a building because you think that the government is attacking you. the end mm-hmm. and watch Shang-Chi because that's a great movie <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode and want to support us please rate us 5 stars on Apple Podcasts leave us a review and click that follow button on Spotify you can also listen to us on Google Podcasts Stitcher iHeartRadio Amazon and whatever podcast platform you listen to and you can follow us on Instagram at HGU Podcast. Share us a message or send us a story if you'd like. You can also email us at hiddenamongustree at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. <laughs>